On your handout of Malachi, we're on the bottom uh, part of that page, and we're picking up where we left off under C prime. You know what I mean by prime? If you have a, a little hash mark, half of a quotation mark after a letter, so remember that from elementary math. So C prime is where we're starting today. The second line that's underlined, the Lord spoke against adultery and other sins. So we're looking at uh, Malachi 2.17 and turning the page into chapter 3. Okay, Malachi 2.17 to 3.5, the Lord spoke against adultery and other sins. Now remember the last passage we studied last week, uh, Malachi 2, 10 through 16, was about the sin of divorces and remarrying uh, pagans or unbelievers. The following passage that we'll study next, Malachi 3, 6 to 12, is also famous. It's about the sin of robbing God of his tithes. So now the passage we're picking up now is in the middle between those two famous passages. People don't always remember this passage as much as they remember the others, kind of like having two famous siblings. Everybody remembers this sibling. Everybody remembers this sibling. It's just little me in the middle. But it's interesting how much is in this passage. Um, this passage is about uh, the future coming of the Lord in judgment. And it's, it's a passage about the Lord's coming, but it doesn't begin that way. So as I, I'm going to introduce verse 17. I'm going to read it in a, in a minute. But let me just introduce where this passage starts and where it goes. It begins with a complaint of the people about God's rule, that God doesn't seem to be just in the way he's governing the universe, specifically governing their lives and their nation. So God replies that he is just, but that his coming in full justice would mean judgment for the people who are raising this complaint. You don't want full justice and only justice from God. Careful what you ask for, right? So the passage is about justice, specifically the justice of God. And it's something that most people say they long for. I hope you talk to your neighbors, you talk to your extended family members, whether they're believers or not, and what people bring up. I don't think they just say it to me because of what I do. I think they say it to all Christians and all other people. All members of society have opinions about what's right and wrong and how things are going, right? Should we have this many shootings? Do we do anything to the shooters? All these sorts of questions. We're outraged when we hear of crimes going unsolved, criminals getting away with it. In the opposite direction, we're equally outraged when we hear of good, innocent people somehow being convicted and then punished for their acts of kindness and good lives. So in both directions, we have both examples when all of us, together with our fellow humans, look at society and we see a world that seems out of order and out of control. Justice is the one word encapsulation of that issue. Do the bad guys get caught and punished? Do the good guys uh, get supported and uh, absolved? So it's God's world, right? So a natural question that arises from every human, not just from Bible-studying Christian people, but all humans have this question arise about whoever is running the universe... Is he just? And what is he doing about injustices? So we notice that the righteous suffer. We notice that evil often prospers. Think of the two most um, uh, covered wars going on right now in the news. Are there not evil persons involved? Are they not prospering? Right. So since the Bible tells us that God is both good and powerful, 
Aren't we warranted to expect that evils will be eliminated? It would be nice if they were eliminated quickly. And good people would receive their proper reward. It would be nice if that happened rapidly. If we have a referee of the universe, when will he blow the whistle and call a foul? So where's the right response of this God to this kind of accusation, if you will, that the Bible presents? For example, Psalm 48.10, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Do you actually feel that way? Do your neighbors and coworkers feel that way? That's what the Bible presents. He's filled with righteousness. One more example, Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Well, if God is feeling indignation every day, when will he take action? So the audience of Malachi is asking these same questions about justice. And that's where we begin with verse 17. Ready now? Here's verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You catch what the meaning is already now? In other words, their concern is that it seems evildoers are not punished. In fact, in their observation, it seems evildoers are prospering. And even to come out and say it, it looks like evildoers are being blessed by God. And to put it even more strongly in verse 17, it seems like God delights in evildoers. So this sounds like the talk of people today in our communities, in our circles, and in our country. Unsaved loved ones um, bring up the topic of justice. They often express these same things. They look around at a world in which they're bothered by evidence. The wicked seem to prosper. Frequent occasions that honest people suffer horrendous tragedies. So they're longing for justice like we are, with unmet expectations. And they're finding it tempting to blame God for the absence of justice. So again, the question at the end of verse 17, to put a fine point on it, where is the God of justice? They're doubting the character of God. They're doubting that God is committed to upholding justice in the world. Or they're concluding that God may not be powerful enough to do what the poor guy wants to do. And so this philosophical and religious question for so many people down through the centuries is further magnified when it flows from your personal pain. What if someone hurt you? What if said person is, not, is being believed and honored and your name is getting dragged through the mud? Where's God in that? Local, small injustice in your life. Why doesn't God intervene to set the record straight for you? You're one of his people. Why doesn't God vindicate your name when God is in a position to do so? He controls the whole universe, doesn't he? So this is where we turn from chapter 2, verse 17, the hard question, to God's answer in chapter 3, verse 1. God answered this concern by saying that God is present and ready to take action. The first word in chapter 3, verse 1, is a Hebrew word that most often gets translated for us, behold. Behold? But it can also be translated, here I am. So, where is God? God answers, here I am. Behold. It can be translated, here I am. So one example, if, you, if you, you're quick, you can turn to Genesis 22.1 or just jot it down and look at it later. God called Abraham and Abraham answered, Abraham answered, here I am. It's behold. 
the exact same word for behold. So the same thing's happening here in Malachi 3.1. God is right here. He's himself saying, here I am. Where am I? Look, behold, I'm right here. So put it all together. Let's read it again, starting with the last sentence of chapter 2. Where is the God of justice? Here I am. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 3, verse 1. So in ancient times, kings sent messengers ahead of them to clear the way for them and their entourage to go. Closest I ever saw to this in my life was when I lived in Pennsylvania and the vice president was coming through. All of us, without fail, contractors, trucks, private cars, all were stopped. No one was allowed to drive or move. You can't get out of your car, you can't move your car. Stay right where you are. All traffic, all vehicles, all roads stopped because a couple miles away, the vice president was coming through in his motorcade. Similarly here, God's royal motorcade is about to arrive unhindered. You can tell because they're stopping all traffic. God says, behold, what happens just before God comes in? He sends his messenger ahead of him. Now remember from last week what we said Malachi means? It's on your paper. My messenger. Now look at the start of verse 1. What did we read? I will send who? My messenger. So he's literally saying, I will send Malachi. I will send my messenger Malachi. He's sending Malachi, and what will Malachi do? Prepare the way before the Lord. So the people are hungry for the justice of God. And God says, here I am. How do you know that God is here or about to arrive here? Because he sent his prophet to speak. Malachi is preparing you for God's arrival. He's been speaking for two chapters and you haven't been listening. Right? I mean, as soon as you see the Secret Service closing all the roads to all the vehicles for their motorcade, the vice president can't be far behind. Right? As soon as you see Malachi the messenger beginning to speak to God's people, God's message, the Lord himself can't be far behind. As verse 1 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, on the topic of justice, what does this have to do with the topic of justice? Well, what will God do when he arrives at his temple? He's going to give out justice. Who's going to do that specifically? The angel of the covenant, we're told. Who's that? A prophet, right? An angel is a messenger. Angel literally means messenger. So who will that be? Elijah. How do we know Elijah? Well, if you turn to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the ending of the Old Testament, the ending of the book of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's going to be Elijah that God will send, right? Malachi prepares the way for the Lord to arrive at his temple. Elijah prepares the way for the Lord himself to come in judgment. And John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord Jesus to come in salvation. Justice and salvation. Same truth is echoed by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 41 to 5. Remember where it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain made low. It's making a highway for God to arrive. What did we start out discussing? Justice. Uh, we, we want the justice of God. Wait, we don't, do we? Justice means our destruction. 
Instead, we want mercy. We want rescue. Where's the mercy of God? Where's the rescue of God, right? And class review, since this is our last day on the Minor Prophets, I've been harping on this since the beginning. Class, what's the overarching theme of the 12 Minor Prophets in three words? Judgment unto restoration. So we want restoration. Who's praying for justice when we can pray for restoration? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, save us, right? Um, By the way, Hosanna, which we say on Palm Sunday, is, oh, Lord, save us. That's a better prayer, actually. Um, But we want both. If we're honest, we want both justice and salvation. We want God's holiness. right? Why did Malachi preach to convict everyone regarding the sins of divorce, which we covered last time, and it's very convicting. If we consider ourselves part of our society and our society is way off the rails in terms of divorce, then we're properly convicted. Why did Malachi preach that? To make us all feel bad? It's judgment unto restoration. How are we going to get restored until we see the problem? The problem is the rampant divorce. So the solution is God's mercy, restoration, repair the covenant with God, repair the covenant with spouse, repair the family, repair the community of faith, repair the larger society of people who are made in the image of God who ought not to break their promises. Judgment unto restoration means the people need to see how we failed God and how God restores us instead of how God destroys us. We see something wrong, we want justice. That's only part of the story. You want justice unto restoration. God, don't just give us what this wrong deserves. Give us the repair that we desperately need. God's justice is more than just some generalized return to a golden age of morality and society in which traditional values return and every home, school, church, and heart has the proper understanding of right and wrong. Uh, God's justice is complete and full and deep. So the minor prophets have a phrase for the full justice of God. Remember what that is? Judgment day. The day of the Lord. When the Lord actually comes. But he doesn't just come bringing damnation and judgment and justice. He also comes bringing salvation and hope and restoration and glory, forgiveness and love. So the great and final day of the Lord brings both. The end, the end of the world, that great and final day of the Lord brings both. He takes strong and decisive action against the wicked and it will be the end of them. Amen, justice, and we will all open our mouths in awe at the correct, accurate, precise, wonderful, beautiful justice of God. Well executed, completely accurate across the board. And we will also be amazed at his mercy to all of us. It's not some happy ending for a family movie where the bad guys are seen slipping around in pudding so they can't get any traction. And the good guys smile and give high fives. Yeah, we won. No, there's actual slaughter. It's full-on destruction that God will implement. It's full justice and full glorious restoration. Comprehensive judgment for everyone. And Would we not be in the group of those who are destroyed? except for the mercy of God through Jesus to come. So there's no partiality, but he's faithful to his covenant. That's what the next verse says. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They'll bring offerings in the righteousness 
uh, in righteousness to the Lord. Who can stand when God appears bringing full justice? No one. Yet, how do we still stand? God took our sins away. How does that work? He's giving us how it works by these two illustrations of refining. First fire, then water. The illustration of fire is when fire heats silver until it's liquid silver, and that causes the non-silver to rise to the surface of that silver, and the bad stuff floats to the top and gets scraped off and removed, leaving only what? Silver, right? Fire purifies silver. So God's fire purifies by taking out things that don't belong in our lives. Second illustration is refining by water and soap. God's refining his water within the washing process of laundry. Clothing and water brought together in whatever ancient way of their laundry, soap is added. Soap causes the dirt to be dislodged from the clothes and caught with the soap. Then the soap is washed away and the dirt goes with the soap and the water. And what's left is clean clothes. It's a simple, clearly understandable illustration of God's activity. He's refining by water and soap. Illustration of purifying. Both the fire illustration and the water illustration do their purifying work by separating bad stuff from valuable stuff. Separating worthless things from valuable things. Separating the sinner from their sin. If the refining process takes away our sins, the result is God is okay with us. Is the laundry able to get the clothes clean enough for God? Is the smelting able to get the silver purified enough for God? Only God can answer, which he does in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The offering will be cleansing for our souls because it points ahead to the once-for-all offering of Jesus to cleanse souls. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The smelting silver illustration points ahead to it. All the laundry we've ever done points to it, but only the blood of Jesus actually cleanses and refines and purifies. It's once for all. All Old Testament believers purified only through the Messiah's blood. All New Testament believers purified only through Christ's blood. These illustrations of refining silver and cleaning clothes point to God's refining us by taking our sins away at the cross. It's accomplished only by that. Um, Does this work for all sorts of sins? Are we actually sanctified enough for God? Yes. We even get a covenant-breaking list now in verse 5 that things that are cleansed by God so they don't need to be judged by God in his justice. Here, provides seven specific examples of sins that need to be judged but are refined instead by God through the coming Messiah, Jesus. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For all those sins listed, they can be refined purified, sanctified, and covered by the cleansing agent of the blood of Jesus. So next is the passage, the famous passage about um, the tithe. So God is a holy God, right? He's a judge. We're sinners. We, why shouldn't the fire burn us up instead of just the dross? Why shouldn't the soapy water wash us away, not just the sins? 
How is it that God separates the sin from the sinner? How is it that he separates the dross from the silver, the stain from the clothing? The answer is in verse 6. New section now. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. How is it that we're not burned up? How is it that we're not washed away along with the dirty water? Because God is faithful. Because God is consistent. Because God does not change. Because God promised. Because he's a covenant God. Remember Malachi 1 verse 2, the very first thing God started off our book by saying, I have loved you. Because God's love is a covenant-keeping love. Kesed, the Hebrew word for the kindness, the consistent kindness and faithfulness of God. Why did God say, I have loved you? Is it because the people were lovable? Was it because the people deserved to be loved? Was it because the people were perfect worshipers and obedient to God? Now remember that prior to this, the people's sins had reached such a point that God decided he had to destroy the whole city and take them off into exile for a very long time out and then bring them back after 70 years. No, it wasn't because they were so lovable and obedient. How was God's action to send them to exile the proof that he remained faithful? The answer is our three-word phrase, judgment unto restoration. He restored his people. He cleansed his people. He purified his people. He had not changed in his love for them. He had not changed in his faithfulness to them. Despite their pervasive sin, despite the entirety of the exile, despite the entirety of the Babylonian captivity, he had not changed. He would cleanse them. He would rescue them. He would redeem them, keep on loving them. That's the same God who had the book of Malachi written for them. That's the same God who had the book of Malachi written for us who's addressing us through these precious words that we also are the audience. We have sinned. And he continues to say, I have loved you, I do love you. He restored us not because of who we are, covenant breakers, but because of who he is, covenant keeper. He will not let us go. He refreshed us not because we had a glimmer of good and maybe there's some hope here, but because he's merciful we were utterly unfaithful. He remains faithful to his own promises. So tithing is now brought up, right? This number five of the six talks with God or the arguments or disputations with God in the book of Malachi. How can we sufficiently emphasize chapter three, verse six? This is the gospel. We've already been talking a lot about the gospel, but look at the character difference between God and his people. God does not change. He's reliable, consistent, his promises, his commitments. That's the sole reason we're not consumed, right? He doesn't change. In contrast, who are his people? That's what we get next. Consider how we're referred to here in verse 6. As God's people were called children of Jacob. Oops. (laughs) Who's Jacob? I mean, what does the word Jacob even mean? Cheater. Grasper. Supplanter. You remember the man who lived up to his name by cheating his brother out of the birthright? We are that, children of Jacob. We are unfaithful cheaters. God doesn't change. We cheat. We don't seem to change. It's always this theater, like the God theater we're talking about, the Minor Prophets. This is the same show every day. We ruin everything. God cleans up everything. It's just the show. It's just the story. It's the story of human life. It's the children of Jacob, right? We don't seem to change. We're just like our forefather Jacob. We're trying to cheat God out of what properly belongs to God and won't even give 10%. That's the issue, tithing. 
Yet God's persistent goodness in the face of persistent selfish scheming of his people is the only reason that we're not consumed or destroyed. With the phrase, children of Jacob, God explicitly recalled their multi-generational pattern of disobedience over a very long period of time. And if it weren't explicit enough for you in verse 6, if you're not trusting my interpretation of verse 6, let's go to verse 7. Quote, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Another example of how all 12 minor prophets are unified in one message. Remember the same phrase in Zechariah 1.3, return to me and I'll return to you. It says it here again, now through Malachi, 80 years later. All right, let's look at how the people responded to God, verse 7. I'll give you a hint. It should sound familiar because we've seen it often before in our study of Malachi. It's how the whole book is structured. God accuses them of a sin and they say, how have we done that sin? And then God demonstrates how they did that sin. So here in Malachi 3.7, instead of the people repenting instantly, they stalled and they asked God, How? How shall we return to you, Lord? They're being resistant. They're challenging and questioning and deflecting God and delaying their obedience. So their stalling efforts gave yet another occasion for God to be very specific about his rebuke regarding their use of money and their giving and worship. And this is part of why this passage has become so well known. But I just hope you appreciate the context because as we've been warming up to it and approaching it in our study of Malachi, you have the full context of the full book and the backstory now, right? It's because God was speaking to a recalcitrant people the way that was so clear and even blunt because they keep saying, well, how? I don't get it. Please explain it to me. And he's now saying, verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions, period? I mean, verse 8 is so blunt, but you can't really miss it, right? And here God confronted the people with a heart problem and a sin problem in the realm of money. Uh-oh, <laughs> right? In this case, God was not simply critiquing his people for a general lack of, of generousness in their giving. The tithe was about a specific obligation to give to God as king. Now, we, we might use the word taxes, that the things that you're obligated to give to those in authority. It helps us to realize it was expected, not optional. After God, their king, had saved them from slavery in Egypt, he then laid down laws that governed their lives in the new land that he'd given them, the land of Canaan. God is their redeemer. He brought them there. He's their king who would continue to provide for them there. The law of the people to give this tithe money was designed to simply perpetually remind the people of the gift that they had been given. Everything, the whole land was a gift to them, and it came from God. All he's asking is 10% so that you keep in mind always, every month, every week, every year, throughout your life, that God gave us everything, right? He gave them the gift of the land. So the people of Israel are always God's tenants in God's land, enjoying the use of the promised land at the discretion of the Lord to whom it belonged. And because of that truth that God owns it all, He's expecting them to return a tithe, which is exactly 10% of the agricultural produce of the land to their Lord, who had freed them from slavery, who had entrusted them with the care and cultivation of the beautiful land of Canaan. The tithe was the modest expectation in comparison to percentages of taxes expected by other human kings in the ancient world. Genesis 47, Jacob 
um, I'm sorry, Pharaoh asked for one-fifth. Quick math tells you 20%. That's twice what God's asking. Uh, Industry standard in those days, average royal tax for kings in those days, one-third. Just a quick reminder, I'm not good at math, but that's 33%. But the Lord, having given them everything, he's asking 10% of the produce of their land, which he had given them as a gift, very sensible, restrained, easily attainable expectation. God's people were taking all that he had given and not giving him the 10%. Israel paid their taxes to support their human government. The 10% to God was to be given specifically to their spiritual king, his divine spiritual government over them, and recognition that it was he who saved them from slavery in Egypt. It was God who had given them a homeland. Because the tithe was focused on the land that God gave, the tithe was focused on the fruits that God gave, the agricultural production of the farms. It was not placed on other forms of income. That was valid, commensurate, and reasonable. Now, what does the tithe have to do with the coming of Christ? Because the end of the book of Malachi is about the coming of Christ. So we'll get to that, right, in chapter 4. Very clear there. But here, is this some giant left turn? Like, how did we get talking about money? Right? How, what does it have to do with the coming of Christ? And the one who will come to restore his people who had fallen into sin and, and divorce and all the other ways? How does this passage specifically, the tithe issue, fit in with the coming of Christ? The answer is, the people's failure in tithing exposes the heart problem for which Christ had to come into the world in order to die. Needed Christ to come the first time to die and rise again. Need Christ to come the second time to seal us for his use forever. Tithing helps us to understand then how to live properly. Once we see how we needed to be saved and then we are saved, the tithe still instructs us because it tells us how to live generously and properly in response to God's grace to us in Jesus. Has he not given us everything? It's like the land. He's given us everything we have as a gift from him. So the uses for the tithe are money as financial support for God's full-time priests so that they can instruct the people. The money used to provide the relief for the poor because we all go through stages where something hard, difficult happened to us. We need help from others. We live in a community. Sometimes we give, sometimes we receive. And the third use for the money is facilitating worship and the celebration of the family of God and the presence of God to worship together and eat meals together. The blessing of the tithe was used for all of that. It was to give to the priests who provided them spiritual instruction to relieve the poor, brothers and sisters in the faith, even those outside the faith, we help. And it was a blessing to worship God together and have meals together. The tithe resulted in blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing. And they were saying, this is my money. I don't want to give it. And God's saying, whose money? All of it is mine. I gave it to you. I'm asking you to give 10% for you to be blessed, to remember where it all came from, to always remember where it all came from. I'm asking you to do that out of obedience so that I can bless you more. They didn't get it. The people were not even giving the low threshold of 10%. They were withholding some of it or all of it. What was the result? Many, instead of many blessings from God, he described the result. Are you ready for this? Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Could I just tell you what word he used here? Fascinating, instructive, 
Here Malachi used the word for nation that has a very negative connotation. Usually it was the pagan nations that were called the goyim. If you only know like a handful of Hebrew words, you might know the word goyim. Here he uses the, the um, singular version of that, goy. Goy is singular, goyim is plural, like the nations. So when Malachi uses the Hebrew word goy, it's clear what God was charging the people with. He was leveling a charge that his chosen people were acting exactly like pagan peoples of the world. You're acting like goyim, the people who have no connection to the living God. The people of faith were acting like pagans in their giving because all I'm asking is 10% and you fail to do that. Isn't that fascinating? You're cursed with a curse. You think that's too strong? He wanted to bless them and they won't let their hands go of the 10%. So if it's not blessing, what's the alternative? Right? It's a toggle switch, blessing or curse. Was there an area in the middle that's between blessing and curse? It has to be this way. The lesson is even more highlighted when we understand the giving processes of their day. Faithful giving of the people in those days would be known only to God and to the individual giver. Animal sacrifices could be seen. They see if you're bringing the animal in, they probably hear them and smell it, right? But the harvested giving? How would the priest evaluate whether that's 10% of what you harvested out in your farm? Are they going to come out and inspect the whole farm and say, that's not quite, that's like 9%, you need to go up a little bit? It wasn't examined. It's the perfect thing to be an accurate test of their hearts. Only God knows, but you know. You're the farmer. You saw how much produce God gave. You were supposed to take 10% of that, and you and their family know the truth. The perfect test to show their heart's relationship to God they could go into a downward spiral, defunding the very spiritual processes that God provided for spiritual and material blessings would weaken them further. Who would remind them of their economic alienation flowing from their spiritual alienation for God? By cutting the support for the tithe, they were undercutting the safety net that was designed to assist the suffering people from extreme poverty. So God issues a summons. He shows them how to instantly pull out of a downward spiral. In one proper action, they could fix the problem. You ready? Verse 10. Bring the full tithe. Now you understand the context. You've heard this verse dozens and dozens of times. Now you understand the context. Bring the full tithe is an act of repentance. It's an act of obedience. It's turning around to doing what God had expected out of faith out of obedience, and because of his mercy. Now read the rest of the verse. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more. Remember that the people were facing financial challenges. Things were tight. Remember things were tight for you? Maybe you're in it now. But God called them to what we today sometimes call raw obedience. In the Bible's language is covenant obedience. Right away, start doing what's right. Let's not do 2% this month and then 4% next month and you know, we'll raise it up little by little until we get there. That's not how our deacons do budget coaching. Right away, 10%. It's from these passages. It doesn't seem like it'll solve the problem. In fact, it seems like it's counterintuitive, right? It'll actually make it worse. Like, my bills are here. 
my money is here. So your solution is, I'm going to give some to God, making my money here. Right? It, it doesn't seem like it's an answer. Right? They'd immediately be required, if they did so, to do what? They'd have to trust God. They'd have to faithfully trust God anew and afresh. Isn't that a good way to describe spiritual restoration? A person who is faithfully trusting God anew and afresh. What if God wouldn't come through? Now they've given even more money away. A fair question. What if? What if God didn't come through? But the answer to that instantly circles back to whether or not they were actually trusting God. God had invited them to put me to the test. Normally across the Bible, testing God is bad. We ought not to put the Lord God to the test. You read it in Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesus repeats it in Matthew 4, 7, many other places. It's not a good habit to be testing God. It's an expression of unbelief. But in this instance, in Malachi chapter 3, it's the opposite. Why? Because testing God here is an expression of belief. We might call it a leap of faith. How do we know when testing God is good? When God himself invites us to test him. And so we are God's people. He invites us to test him. He's instructing his people. He's saying, trust me. He's saying, put yourself in a live, real situation where you really need me to come through. There's nothing else that's going to save you unless I come through for you. Put yourself in that situation and watch me come through for you. What is that doing? That's building your faith. And it's covenantal because God is telling us to step out and watch for his promises to be kept for, him, uh, for us. And we are responding to his covenant expectations for us. It's covenantal. It's a two-way relationship. Like, what's their alternative? It's what most people do. Wait for God to make the first move. I tell you what, if God's going to take care of me, I'll wait for the first windfall. If, if I got a couple thousand dollars flow in, I'll be feeling better already, and then I'll give a little back to God. How about he's big, he make the first move. That's what most people do. If God provides, then I'll trust him. That's not trust. It's not trust. It's just a good business decision. Say a company, a national company, wants to open a new store. They open a store in Menominee Falls. If it does well, good business result, they'll continue in that direction and might open a second one. That's results-oriented. That's business-oriented. It has nothing to do with faith. It ought to be different for God's people in relationship to God. If we take the company approach, the business approach, that God did not provide, therefore I'm going to hang on to every dollar I've got I'm going to abandon God and go in a different direction if he doesn't give me the couple thousand I asked for. I'll just go follow another God. It's treating God like a machine from heaven, treating God like my coffee maker. If my coffee maker makes me coffee, I'll use it again tomorrow. If my coffee maker fails to make me coffee today, I'm going to throw it away and I'm going to go buy a different coffee maker. People treat God like a coffee maker. I'm going to get rid of God and I'm going to trust something else. Like myself. God is inviting them to relate to God in a different way. You make the first move. You trust me right now. 
and you embrace the obedience I called you to, to give me 10%, it may seem foolish. But testing God by obeying God and expecting him to come through is to experience instantly the two-way relationship. You're doing something to show obedience to God and trusting him, and you're needing God to do something to show you his faithfulness and blessing you. It's called covenant. It's living. It's truly living. It's trusting him. You're going to quickly find out what sort of God it is upon whom you are relying. And don't forget, it was God who already initiated. Way ahead of you. God is the one who, um, in the first place, created. In the, the second place, redeemed. He gave them the land. He gave them the order, the command, to give 10%. And when they failed, he showed them they're wrong. He sent them the prophet. He renewed his com- covenant command to give 10%. And he instructed them to test him in this to get out of the financial hole. And all this applies to us. You have less money in hand, the bills to pay. Tell you what, give 10% of your money to God and that will help. It goes against the world's logic. Our deacons, uh, budget coaching is different from what a financial advisor would say in exactly this way. But there's another set of logic that goes along with faith. It says he's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's absolutely humongous. If he's able to create me in the first place, if he's able to redeem me in the second place, if he's able to allow me to descend into this pickle, he's also able to provide for me in the middle of my pickle and change everything about my circumstance. And logic says he can. So spiritually, God's asking him to be less attached to finances, more attached to God himself. Rather than holding more tightly to money, loosen your grip on the money, hold more tightly to the Lord God. And here's what he promised in verses 10 and 11. Open the heavens for pouring rain on their crops. Eliminate the devouring pests such as locusts. Divine pest control. That would be a cool name for a company. Divine pest control. But it's truly God preventing the pests from ruining their crops. Harvest no longer barren but bountiful. The same God who gave them land now gave them a promise and he'll give them crops. Verse 12, international recognition as a delightful land and a people truly blessed by God. All the nations sit up and take notice of how much God will bless them if they'll bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Start now, 10%. Trust God to care for them. That's the context of this. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is not creating a religion of works righteousness. This is a faith-based, grace-based religion. God is a covenant God. What would he not do for them? He would send his own son for them eventually. It's a beautiful thing, this passage. All right, just have a few minutes left. Uh, What I'd like to do is pass around a cute little symbol and explain it and end our study of Malachi and our, our study of uh, the Minor Prophets. This is a symbol of a son with wings from the ancient world. A winged sun symbol. So I'll pass it around. You see the sun in the middle and the, uh, 
the wings on either side. That was a very common uh, logo uh, in the old, uh, old world. So let me jump to chapter uh, 4, and, uh, and we'll pick up with that, that phrase. Verse, uh, let me read chapter 4, and we'll make a few comments and we'll be done, okay? Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, not, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There it is. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So I could have put on your quiz, what's the last word of the Old Testament? <laughs> Curse or destruction. Like, wow, that's kind of a bad way to end, right? Like the God of mercy, the God of love, the covenant God, and the last word of the Old Testament is curse, uh, destruction. We like happy endings, right? We're doing a God theater theme. So how about the very last scene of the very last play of our 12 plays? We have this fun and heartwarming scene at the end like most you know, plays end, you know? How about the, the story about God's great actions of uh, creation, redemption? How about the, the hope of salvation to come? How about your uh, judgment unto restoration? Like, give me a restoration theme. No, it, it ends with destruction, the very last word, Right? How about uh, Christ is soon to come to save his people from their sins? How about God will be perfectly glorified in all of his covenant and his people? But this is how it ends. Interesting. But the promises are still in effect, right? All the things that we've been studying. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So God's promises will be fulfilled in Christ, who is said to be coming after God's messenger here, so the book concludes with this. <laughs> the Old Testament concludes with this uh, by looking forward. But rather than ending the story with judgment, there's a whole other testament to be written. 27 books are coming, right? And those 27 books tell the story of restoration just like this has. They both tell the full story of judgment unto restoration. They tell the story of God. And they look forward by having you fix your sights on Elijah. Chapter 4, verse 5. And when the New Testament opens, one of the earliest voices is in Matthew uh, chapter 3, was John the Baptist. And soon after that, in Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus said, John the Baptist is that new Elijah that they were supposed to look for. So 400 years of silence, and then the New Testament begins. And they were always looking for the new Elijah. And Jesus says, it was John the Baptist. Elijah was supposed to do what? Prepare the way for the Lord, right? And so what does John the Baptist do? He prepares the way for the Lord. He's the one who looks and says, behold, the Lamb of God. He's, he's like the guy who introduces the main speaker, right? Jesus said it was Elijah. Uh, John the Baptist was the Elijah. It means that Jesus fulfilled the hopes of the book of Malachi for the coming Lord. Elijah is the messenger who prepares the way for the Lord, just as John was a messenger who prepared the way for Jesus. So uh, Isaiah 40, 
1 through 5. I'll just read verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then Mark chapter 1, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Isaiah gets quoted, but Malachi says the exact same thing. Malachi had the same message of all the 12 minor prophets, judgment unto restoration. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien puts the, uh, this way in the book, The Return of the King, quote, everything sad will indeed come untrue, end quote. Everything sad will indeed come untrue. Our tears will be dried. Our sorrows will be comforted. Our sickness is healed. Our loss is made more than whole. This last word curse will be undone. The destruction will be undone. Rebuilding will happen. And how do we properly celebrate now what we know is coming? Uh, Look at Acts 3, where the lame beggar waited at the temple and all he could hope for, his best hope at the beautiful gate, literally called the beautiful gate, was that somebody would give him a little bit of money. He never even hoped beyond that. And Peter and John say, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then what happens? Acts 3.8 says this, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Take the calves, leaping in the end verses. Take the former beggar, leaping in Acts 3, and you have two illustrations, one old covenant, one new covenant of you. You were formerly dead. You were formerly unable to walk. And now you're the leaping calf. You're the leaping former beggar. The joy of our rescue by Jesus. We'll be like those calves in the spring sunshine, walking and leaping and praising God, reveling in the fullness and completeness of our salvation in Christ. Malachi had the exact same message of all the 12. Judgment unto restoration which only comes in Jesus. Next Sunday, uh, we start with Psalm 1. So if you want to read ahead, it's 